the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we're going to talk about the animals that live in the world with us, what we do to them, how we've changed their world, and what that means to them. It's a really interesting concept. How has human behavior and existence changed the world from the perspective of other animals? Ed Young, a science writer at The Atlantic, tackles it in his book, An Immense World. He joins us right after the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. So when most of us think about animals, I think the immediate thing that comes to mind are the dogs and the cats and the fish or the rabbits who live with us in our homes, the pets who make our lives really interesting and sometimes maybe make them pretty chaotic. But of course, that's just a small representation of the animal world outside humankind. And it's a small representation of the effect that we as humans have on the animal world. Yes, we love our cats and our dogs and our fish and our rabbits, but we also go about our days tormenting a lot of the animals that we have less connection with. Most Americans eat animals every day, for for example. Uh, Our industrialized meat consumption habits help enact an uncomfortable amount of suffering on all kinds of different animals. And yes, they can feel pain and they have families and familial connections just like we do. Humans are now, of course, connected to every aspect of Earth, and we have an effect on every part of the planet. Our cities and industrialized processes have not just killed off more species than has ever been true. We're also disturbing and altering the lives of animals and insects that exist nearest to us. Through light and sound and air pollution, we kill or alter the lives of an untold number of birds and insects. So maybe our lack of consideration for animals, how they live, is due to the fact that we don't often consider the richness of their lives. We don't think of them as beings in quite the same way that we are. With the exception of our pets, we don't even seek to sense what their world is like. A new book by Atlantic science writer Ed Young tries to do just that. An immense world goes on a journey through the lives of many animals and insects to better understand the world from their perspective and on their own terms. Have you ever imagined, for instance, what it would be like to taste with your hands? Or what about being able to see a wider variety of colors? Ed Young takes us to the immediate experiences of mosquitoes and mantis shrimp, for instance, to give us a deeper understanding of those things. And in doing so, he asks us, what would it be like if we were more conscious of, more considerate of the animal world? What if we took their experiences into the equation of our decisions about how we live and how we develop the world? What if we thought about our cities and roads and lights with animals in mind as much as human beings? What would it be like if we treated them with the awe and the wonder 
that they actually deserve. I think that's a wonderful starting point for a conversation about the way we live in the world and the way we decide to live in the world. And I'm really pleased to welcome Ed Young here to have that conversation with us. Ed, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So uh, let's start here. You are a science writer at The Atlantic. Uh, you can write about just about anything. I'm really uh -huh. curious about what got you interested in writing about the ways that animals interact with the world from their perspective and on their own terms. What made you think of that? And what drew you to writing about their sensations and their experiences? Uh, so I do actually write about anything and everything, uh, you know, from weird animal behavior to the consequences of the COVID pandemic. Um, but throughout my long career as a science writer, I've, I've periodically written about the ways animals sense the world. Um, it is a thing that I've been fascinated uh, with since I was a small child. Um, and uh, But the idea of actually turning all of that into a single book, a, a synthesis of all the varied senses that there are in nature, um, came from my wife. Um, she was a marine biologist, uh, and as part of her graduate work, she studied the ways in which um, coral reef fish see colour. Um, so this is a, a shared interest of ours. Uh, the book was her idea to me, and you know, the finished product is my gift to her. And so let's talk about how you even start to think about and look into something like this. I mean, the animal world is, of course, as you point out, very rich. It is extremely diverse. And there are lots of different ways, I guess, to think about how animals experience the world. What, what, what's your starting point here? So the starting point was really the um, the, so the central concept that uh, underlies and animates the entire book, which is the Umwelt idea. Umwelt is German for environment, but in this context, it's not used to mean the physical environment. It's used to mean the sensory environment. So the idea is that every animal species, or really every individual, has its own set of sights and smells and sounds and textures that it can tap into but that other creatures might not be able to. So, you know, I cannot see the ultraviolet light that most other sighted animals can see. It is not part of my umbelt. But by contrast, you know, I, my ears are pretty good. My fingers are pretty sensitive. My eyes are pretty sharp um, with contact lenses in. Uh, and so my, my umbelt is particular to me. It doesn't include the electric and magnetic fields that a lot of other, other animals can sense. It does include certain colors that, for example, my dog can't see. Each of each creature is trapped within its own particular sensory bubble, perceiving just a small fraction of the fullness of reality. And that, that concept, I think, is one of the most beautiful and profound in nature. It then anchors the rest of the book, which then goes through the individual senses one at a time, from very familiar ones like vision, to less familiar ones, like sensing electric fields or magnetic fields. And as you say, this book is about sensations, both sensations that we are privy to, and especially the ones that we aren't, that a variety of animals use in their daily lives and that we don't even notice. Talk more about some of those sensations that animals have that we don't uh, and that we don't really even acknowledge as sensations, or maybe I guess we can get to the space of acknowledging that these are similar to feelings or emotions, the, the, the more complex reactions to the world that I think we ascribe to ourselves almost exclusively. Oh, right, and let's draw a bit of a distinction here, right? Like things like feelings and emotions are, um, more complicated cognitive stuff. That's not part of the book. Um, mm -hmm. And actually, when people talk about the, think about what animals experience, they often think about that, that stuff, right? Like the higher level bits and pieces. What I'm arguing is that if you drill down to the very first step of that process, just the kinds of information about the world that animals are capable of detecting, we already run into incredibly stark differences. That's what the book is about. It's about perception, it's about sensing. So for example, um, 
a sea turtle hatchling or a migrating songbird can perceive the magnetic field of the Earth. So they know which way to go and sometimes even where they are in the world without any other landmarks. Um, some animals can sense the electric fields given off by other living things. A shark can use those electric fields to detect fish that are buried under the sand. Um, some electric fish can generate their own electric fields, producing uh, electricity from their own bodies, which act as batteries. By looking at, by uh, analyzing how those fields are distorted by objects around them, whether it's a conducting thing like a plant or an insulating thing like a rock, they can also sense their environment even when they can't see or rely on other traditional senses. Mm -hmm. um, then, you know, besides those uh, exotic senses that we have, the senses that we do have work in very different ways in a lot of other creatures. Um, so bats, for example, can make ultrasonic calls that are too high pitched for us to hear. And they can navigate around the world and hunt insects on the wing by listening out for the echoes bouncing off uh, of those calls, bouncing off the objects around them. This is a skill called echolocation that mm -hmm. allows bats to dominate the night sky when they, even in the conditions when they can't see. Um, songbirds uh, can produce songs that we can obviously hear, but our ears are too slow to pick up the qualities that are encoded within those songs, which the birds themselves, with their much faster hearing, can detect to a songbird. Its own song sounds very different than it would to us. And then finally, if you think about vision, you know, the sense that certainly for sighted humans is dominant. Vision works in very different ways for a lot of other animals. There are animals with you know, multiple, lots and different sets of eyes all over their bodies. Starfish have eyes at the tips of their arms. Scallops have eyes running along, along the rims of their shells. Um, our eyes, there are just two of them, and they both face forward. So <laughs> to us, the visual world moves towards us when we move it, when we move ahead. But birds and many other animals with wraparound vision um, have a visual world that surrounds them. So when they're moving ahead, the wor that world moves towards them and also away from them at the same time. And many of those birds can see an entire dimension of colors that we can't see, um, not just things like ultraviolet, but, you know, co but cocktail colors, the equivalent of our purples or browns um, that we can't even imagine and don't have names for. So, you know, there are, I could go on, right? The whole book is about stuff like this. But the idea is that there are senses that we don't have that animals have. There are ways in which animals use the senses that we're familiar with in extraordinarily different ways. Um, and you can find examples like this everywhere. Every creature you look at, uh, every creature you think about has a different way of experiencing the world um, that can be you know radically different to what we experience yeah and what is the value of us understanding that and i guess the the the, the converse of that uh, of that question is what are we losing out on by not understanding this more and not acknowledging as you put it in the book the the, the richness of the lives uh, of these animals yeah, I, I think there's a few things that we gain. Um, let's talk about three. So firstly, I think that we um, it, it helps us appreciate animals in their own right. Like just how magnificent a lot of the, the baseline conditions of their lives are. You know, I go out on a walk um, uh, with my dog all every morning. And every morning I will see the same types of species. I will see sparrows and starlings. And they've become boring. You know, they're, they're just commonplace fixtures of most urban environments. But both of these birds uh, can see that extra dimension of colors that I've talked about. They can see qualities in their own plumage, hear qualities in their own songs that we cannot perceive. They can feel the air currents moving over their wings as they fly. They can fly, an extraordinary skill in itself. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just by sitting there doing absolutely nothing, they have inc they're doing incredible things. And I think knowing about this helps me appreciate them more. The same goes for other creatures whom we, that we might um, uh, find uh, disgusting or, 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 you know, or, or repulsive. Um, a lot of the book is about 
creatures like spiders and snakes and scorpions and bats, um, creatures that have, I think, a very unfairly bad reputation. And, and the book talks about the ways in which those creatures are spectacular too. Um, the second thing is that I think it changes our perception of the world around us. This is why the subtitle of the book is um, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. Mm -hmm. I, I think it shows us flickers of the extraordinary in the ordinary and the magical in the mundane. And when I go for a walk with my dog, um, you know, I, I walk around streets that I see every day. I've walked thousands of times over and they seem boring and unchanging to me. But he will explore those same streets with his nose with just great enthusiasm and zeal every single time because to his nose, those streets are constantly changing. They, they, their um, they're, they're, um, quality varies depending on which dogs have just recently walked past. You know, the, the weather, whether plant, new plants are in bloom. Um, by thinking about those streets through his nose, I understand that the world around me is a much more dynamic place than, than I've come to realize. Um, you know, by thinking about the, the animals that sense magnetic fields, those that see ultraviolet, I see hidden qualities in the world around me. And part of the, in part of the book, I write about how there are these insects called leaf hoppers and tree hoppers. They sit on plants and they send signals vibrating through the stems and leaves of the plants um, that other leaf hoppers and tree hoppers can perceive. We can't hear those signals. They're not sounds in the traditional sense, but you can tap into them with a clip-on microphone and a speaker. And if you do that, what you hear are these incredibly melodic, haunting, beautiful noises that are totally unlike what you would expect an insect to sound like. They might sound like musical instruments or birds um, or you know, uh, machinery sometimes. And the thought that in every park, in every garden, there are these incredible signals coursing through all the plants that we walk past and, and lie on and step over. I think that is truly profound to me. And then the final thing, which you've sort of hinted at in the introduction of this, this um, segment, is that I think if we don't think about the umbelt of another animal, we risk harming it. Um, so in small ways, right? Like I've already talked about how important smell is to dogs. And yet on most walks, I think most dog owners pull their dogs along without allowing them a chance to sniff <laughs> and without allowing them a chance to explore. That exploration is crucial to them. Sniffing is really important to a dog. You know, it'd be like um, taking a, a person who's going on a hike and just gazing at the beautiful scenery around it, uh, covering that person's eyes and just forcing them to march along in darkness. Um, so, uh, you know, we by letting dogs sniff and use their nose noses, uh, they become happier. They become less anxious. Um, but then there are also more profound ways in which we're harming the creatures around us. Uh, you, you sort of hinted at this, and we should talk about it more. Um, by flooding the world with too much light in the darkness and too much noise in quiet spaces, we are polluting the sensory worlds of other animals mm. in ways that are harming them, and sometimes fatally so. Um, this is a problem that I think that we ignore because we don't think of these things as pollution, and we don't think of light and noise as being potentially problematic, but they very much are. And they are things that we can do something about. Yeah. And, and some of it is that we don't think of the animals who are affected by light and noise as worthy of our concern or, or consideration. Uh, that, that we don't think of them in the same way that we think, for instance, of the dog that uh, you walk every day uh, in, in your neighborhood. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Ed Young of The Atlantic, and we want to get going with you, the listeners, on the phones and on social media. Call and tell us what you think about the animals in your world, what you think they think or perceive about you and us. Also, what do you think of the wider animal world and how it perceives uh, not only its own environment but but our effect on that environment all of the ways in which human existence and behavior has changed the world for animals do you think animals should have more space away from human contact or do you think there's a better way for us to live in concert with them 
313-577-1019 is the number here on the phone. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest this hour is Ed Young, a science writer at The Atlantic and author of multiple books, including most recently, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. So we're talking about the animal world, how it's affected by human existence and behavior, uh, how animals themselves perceive uh, that change, that effect that we have on their world, and whether there are better ways for us to live without having such a negative effect on so many animals. I uh, want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Give us a call. Let us know about your sense of the effect we have on animals, the relationship that we have with animals, uh, those in our house, those outside our homes. Uh, should we be thinking differently uh, about the way we interact with them. Uh, what kind of things do you learn, for instance, from watching birds outside your window or watching insects in the dirt? How much do you take in of what their world must be like? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we will include you in the conversation that way. Let's start today with Karen in Macomb. Karen, welcome to the show. Good morning. I hey. have been waiting for this show all weekend. <laughs> and it's finally here, Karen. <laughs> yes. And, and you know what? I'm going to listen to the repeat at 7 o'clock tonight, too. <laughs> That's good. That's good. What's on your mind? Well, um, I am so happy you mentioned rabbits as pets. My rescue rabbits are my babies. Um, I work remotely, so I have my laptop on my lap, and one of my rescue bunnies, Cody, is sitting right next to me. He's mm. an amazing little coworker. He's just <laughs> chilled out. And then there's Marcy, who is just some, um, she's really mischievous. And uh, animals, we just, you know, we take them for granted. And that's really tragic. Um, they they are so keenly aware of what is going on. Mm. Um, I went through a really traumatic event um, at the end of March 2020, you know, in the height of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. She knew something was wrong, and she did not leave my side. Wow. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, that, that's that amazing. perception, right? It's that perception that they have and are capable of that we don't always understand or or even acknowledge. Karen, I'm I'm really glad I'm really glad that you were so excited for the show, and I'm glad you called in and uh, shared your experience with your rabbits. I, I I have a daughter who also has a rabbit. The rabbit is somewhat new to our lives in the last couple of years, but the things that uh, have become evident about animals uh, in that time are are really revelatory. I mean, it is a very different kind of pet to have than uh, dogs, which is what uh, which is what we have always had uh, with with my kids. Uh, Ed, uh, talk about that perception of the animals in our homes. We were talking about you walking your dog and and uh, being aware of how your dog perceives the outside world, but but the ways in which they perceive us and our interactions with them. I think sometimes uh, the complexity of that gets lost on us. Right. And, and you know, and uh, I love interacting with my dog. His name is Typo. He's a corgi. Um, he's a delightful little bundle of joy. Um, you know, it's, 
it's it's fascinating when you have an animal in your home all the time right you're thinking about how it behaves um, what it's thinking um, what he's thinking and um, I I think that it's very easy to sort of map on um, to the um, animals around us uh, our sort of human experiences um, our human ways of looking at things, um, our human ways of thinking. And sometimes that's totally fine, right? We have a, a like shared history with them, um, and spe especially animals which have been domesticated, um, you know, we have like shared ways of thinking with them. Um, but I'm interested in the difference, right? I'm interested in the ways in which they are perceiving things that we aren't perceiving, the ways that we're perceiving things that they're not perceiving. And I think about that a lot when I'm interacting with Typo. You know, where, uh, most of his toys look very, very different to me because he um, doesn't see uh, a significant proportion of the colors that I see. Um, his, uh, you know, the, the, he's closer to the floor. So he feels vibrations um, in the ground uh, that I often don't feel just because I'm standing up and I'm sitting on the ground and playing with him. I feel a lot more going on in the streets. Hmm. Um, he hears different kinds of sounds that I, that I hear. You know, but some people, everyone, every dog owner, I think, has had experiences of dogs like kind of seeing ghosts, right? They're like freaked out by something uh, happening uh, outside the window or in the corner that you can't see. But like, they are also, you know, perceiving the world in different ways. Their eyes are slightly less sharp, their color vision is slightly less um, acute, but their ears are very good, then their sense of smell is extraordinary. So, you know, what I'm struck with all the time when I'm with Typo is that we can be in exactly the same physical space and have radically different experiences of that space. Um, and it makes me understand that my perception of even the most familiar of my surroundings um, is only partial. And it also highlights that here is the animal that I spend the most amount of time with, right? Like, I, I know my dog very, very well, but I also don't really know what is going on inside his head. Um, <laughs> the American philosopher Thomas Nagel like, wrote about this, right? In his classic essay, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? He argued that you could imagine being a bat, you can imagine like the leathery wings between your fingers flying through the air, but you're not going to be able to actually grasp the subjective experience of what it is like to echolocate, you know, to, to experience the world as a bat might. And the same is true for um, me and my dog. And, you know, rather than think, thinking like, I, I know everything that's going on in his head, I, I, I embrace the fact that I don't. And I, I find like glory and value in that. Like, I, I think that there's something about um, uh, understanding and appreciating that despite, you know, all my um, human smarts, I am incapable of fully grasping what it is like to be this other creature who I spend, you know, basically all of my time with. Um, yeah. I, I think that's kind of wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Karen, really love the call and uh, love that you were so looking forward uh, to the show <laughs> here. <laughs> Let's go next to Lonnie, who is driving on I-94 uh, eastward. Lonnie, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Uh-huh, uh, Yes, Steve, I, I guess my, my thoughts on this is that this also perception uh, it, it, it continues the, this, this narcissistic Western perception that we need to appreciate the animal world as though we're not a part of the animal world. Hmm. You know, we, just as the uh, Arthur, or your, your, your visitor stated that, you know, we have skills and perceptions that the animals don't have as well. We also have, even individuals can perceive things Differently, Wittgenstein, the German philosopher, made his uh, living talking about different perceptions of reality of individuals in the same space. Hmm. And hmm. So that, and and for instance, a young blind a blind person will perceive something differently than a sighted person. There's even a young man who's been do, using echolocation simply because he knew that Beth did it, and he wondered if he could. Right. And and so 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 it's not. I don't think we need to appreciate animals in, in some sort of mythical sense because they don't do that to us because they, they are living their lives. What they see, <laughs> they see. Yeah. Two people, if I go to a concert with, with someone and it's my friend's concert, I could be sitting there perceiving the same concert and be bored and think it's the most raucous 
cacat phonic thing I've ever heard <laughs> while they're thinking it's the most wonderful melodic experience they've ever come across. Yeah. So this this idea that that being able to perceive things differently makes them uh, different just doesn't doesn't quite yeah. I don't quite buy it as, as anything more than some more palaver. Yeah, uh, Lonnie, I really appreciate the call. That's a, a very thoughtful take uh, uh, on the subject. Ed Young, I'll give you a chance to to respond. Uh, well, so it's clear that, um, as I've said at the start of this, that individuals of the same species can also perceive the world in very different ways. And part of the book is also about that. Like even within humans, mm -hmm. um, there are um, a small number of mostly women who uh, can perceive the same wider range of colors that a lot of birds can perceive. Um, there are absolutely um, humans who can echolocate, and I write about them in the chapter on echolocation. Um, in fact, it's really interesting. If you look at the very first scientific papers that talk about echolocation as a term, those papers are about bats and about people. Um, so there are, very, there are blind people who can make loud clicking noises with their tongues and perceive the world through the echoes that come back to them, um, and I meet and talk about one of them in the book. Um, not sure about the uh, slightly <laughs> tenuous link between uh, people are different too, and therefore those differences don't matter. It seems a bit of a weird take to me, but like my argument is that uh, all those differences matter, right? Like the um, the differences between uh, within a species, the differences across species. Um, I think it is a profound thing that we all experience the same shared reality. In, um, in very, very starkly different ways. And I think that at, at its core, the book is a call for both curiosity and empathy. You know, I think it's, it's a call to think more about the experiences of um, those around us, whether it's uh, other people or whether it's other creatures, and to try and put yourself in the shoes of um, those other individuals and other species. Yeah. And, and I think it's a really worthwhile thing to do. And I think one gets a lot out of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and before we go back to our listeners, talk a little about the ways that we can live in closer connection uh, to animals, ways that don't disturb them so much, for instance, with our lights or our roads or our infrastructure and the ways that we can incorporate more of the animal world, I guess, into ours or consideration of the animal world into ours. Yeah, so um, the final chapter of the book is about this idea of sensory pollution. So too much light, too much noise um, in places where they don't belong. I'll give you a few examples of this. So um, lights at night very obviously attract insects and they can pull pollinating insects away from the plants that they need to service. Um, tall buildings um, that are brightly lit at night can waylay migrating birds at times when they can't afford to lose energy, when they need all the fuel that they can get. Um, at night, uh, in, um, in quiet spaces, noise can put off um, a lot of species that would be perfectly happy there. There was one really great experiment uh, that showed this by creating a phantom road. Some scientists went to um, the hills of Idaho and lashed some speakers to some trees and played out the sounds of road traffic. So there are no cars and there are actual cars. There's no risk of collision. There's no fuel. Uh, there's no fumes or exhaust. Just the noise of the cars alone um, dropped the number of migrating birds in that area by a third. And it meant that those who stayed behind were in worse condition because they were constantly stressed and on the lookout for um, sources of danger. Hmm. So in many, many ways, um, we push animals out of the spaces around us with light and noise pollution. Uh, we, um, we make life harder for those that choose to stay. We can do stuff, we can deal with all of this. Like night and noise pollution, unlike a lot of forms of ecological harm, are actually reasonably easy to fix. You can um, turn things off, you can slow things down that produces less noise. Um, and unlike something like say plastics or pesticides, which will linger in the environment for decades after production stops, as soon as you flick off a switch, often light and noise pollution can cease. Now, this is a, a problem that we can deal with and, and we should do. 
Now, you talked earlier about how um, a lot of people aren't minded to care for the animals around us, mm -hmm. to, to think about their experiences. Well, partly that, that's tied into this problem. Like at the early pandemic, a lot of people suddenly talked about how they could hear birds um, to a degree that they couldn't before. There was, a, there were, you know, there were all these like memes and jokes about nature is healing, like as, as if animals were sort of flooding back into these um, urban spaces uh, because humans were indoors. It's not quite what happened, I think, what happens is because people are indoors, they make much less noise. And in a much less noisy environment, you can not only hear noises that were previously masked from you, like birdsong, but you can hear over a much larger distance. And this is probably this is why I think light and noise pollution are so insidious. They mm. are the pollution of disconnection. They sever us from the natural world. In the, the light and the darkness stops us from seeing the very stars above our heads. Um, noise in moments of quiet stops us from appreciating bird songs, songs of insects, songs of frogs. Um, and it means that nature then becomes something that is distant and removed from us. Nature is often, to a lot of people, something synonymous with wilderness, you know, with remote, grand, distant spaces that are far removed from their daily lives. But, you know, I think when you, when you reduce the amount of light and noise, you start understanding just how much of the natural world is in our own backyard. You start yeah. appreciating it a bit more, just as people heard those birds at the start of the pandemic. Uh, you know, I think that if you then understand that nature is close to us and, and part of our lives, you become you get more of an impetus to want to protect and want to save it. So I think all of these things go hand in hand. You know, the, the fact that we are pushing animals away and making their lives harder also reduces our connection with and our degree of empathy empathy with the natural world, the the, the wilderness that exists just in our, uh, our on our doorstep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's take one more call here. Chris in Allen Park. Chris, what's on your mind? Hi. Um, I wish that I could remember the name of a book that I read uh, several years ago, but it was talking about cultural differences in senses in different cultures and how um, basically reiterating what... Uh, Ed Young was just saying about how people who live closer to nature, they develop senses that we in the industrialized world um, don't experience, and not because they're not able to be developed, but mm. because they get drowned out. <clears throat> and I don't remember if it was part of this book or if I... Um, um, extrapolated from it, but one of the things they talked about was kind of an inner sense of um, rightness or whatever that that impacts, hmm. that, that I came to see as impacting decision-making. And, um, you know, you have... So living closer to nature affects the, affects the way humans make decisions is what you're saying is that or right, what i'm suggesting yeah you know it's like we we do the pros and cons list which is very head-based and um like the animal that can feel vibrations you know there's bodily sensations that we are not attuned to um that some people in other cultures are and so it affects the way they not only interact with the world around them, our environment, but also other human beings and with ourselves. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Chris, really, really great uh, observations. Ed, what's your reaction to what Chris is talking about here? Um, so I think like, looking at cultural differences in the ways animals, uh, in, the, in the ways people um, sense the world is, I think, really interesting. Um, you know, if you, uh, the, in, the, um, in the chapter on smell that opens the book, um, I talk about how um, there's a long strain of thought in Western writing and philosophy about how humans just aren't very good at smell. Um, 
And, uh, you know, this is certainly tied into the fact that we don't really have a very rich vocabulary for it. Mm -hmm. You know, unlike the, the many words we use to describe sounds and textures and, and sights, um, the, the words for sound are actually very, very few. Most of them are loans. Like there are other nouns. They're, they're borrowed from talking about other senses. Um, but that's not the case for um, many groups of people around the world. There are many um, hunter-gatherer groups in uh, especially Southeast Asia, like the Jahai or the Manik, who have very rich smell vocabularies. Um, and smell is a very, very important part of their lives and their cultures in the way that it absolutely isn't um, in, in much of the West. Um, and you know, the, it's, it's fascinating to read the word with the work of um, anthropologist Asper Majid, who's worked a lot with these people, um, and you know, just the way they smell, the, the, the importance of smell to them. Um, is is truly profound, and and I think you know you, you could argue that if we um, uh, if if Western cultures um, also um, uh, had uh, smell as as an important part of their daily lives, um, you know th this long-standing idea that smell is important to humans as a whole would never have gained traction. So part of this is absolutely about um, our physical capabilities. Um, what, you know, at baseline we are able to sense it not. You know, I can't sense the Earth's magnetic field. But part of it is also about um, the, the ways in which we think about the senses, the ways in which culture and biology interact with each other. Um, we've already talked about, you know, how humans can echolocate. Uh, a lot of blind people can. That skill has been um, overlooked for a long time because of um, ableism, because of you know, discrediting the abilities of people who... Um, uh, uh, who don't fit into like these um, these uh, physiological and neurotypical norms. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, again, like the, it sort of goes back to this idea of um, of really leaning into variation and difference, whether it's just between us or um, between us and the rest of the animal kingdom. Yeah. Okay, uh, Ed Young, science writer at The Atlantic and author of An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realm. Uh, it was really great to have you here with us on uh, Detroit Today. Congratulations on the book and thanks for joining. Thank you so much for having me. Take care, everyone. Okay, when we come back, we are going to talk about uh, connecting with each other through food, specifically about the Iconoclast dinner experience and an event that's happening tonight in Dexter. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Food does a lot for us, nourishes us and sustains us and gives us great joy, but uh, we often don't eat in isolation. We love to connect with other people over food. One woman is trying to use food for that purpose and more. Dr. Leslie Levine Harville is a pediatric dentist, host of the IDE Impolite Conversation podcast and curator of the Iconoclast Dinner Experience. And much of what she does is try to explore culture through the lens of food, try to, to connect people and raise their voices and skill sets of amazing chefs that often don't get as much attention as they probably deserve. She is bringing the Iconoclast Dinner Experience to Dexter, Michigan tonight, which will be in partnership with Zingerman's Deli in Ann Arbor. It will also be highlighting the work of various chefs from the Detroit and Washtenaw County area. Dr. Harville, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no, great to have you here. So before we get to this event, talk about this Iconoclast dinner experience. What kind of experiences and conversations you're trying to spark with these dinners, often from underrepresented culinary experts? Yeah, so we really create thoughtful programming and high-touch culinary experiences that 
make people think about things that maybe they haven't thought about before. Obviously, for folks who are attending our events, they get exposed to chefs and culinary and beverage professionals that they haven't had access to. Um, and it really gives them a platform to interact with each other um, in intimate and meaningful ways. Uh, net proceeds from all of our events actually benefit a scholarship that I have at Spelman College. I'm a Spelman alum and parent, and since 2015, <laughs> we've raised over $100,000 for Spelman College women. Wow, wow. Uh, and your your podcast, uh, IDE Impolite Conversation, is working in this same space, isn't that right? Absolutely. We actually were nominated for a Webby in season one. We are in production for season two. And um, again, we use food as an accessible entry point to explore more um, nuanced and complex cultural topics. So, for example, we might explore what is who gets to be an American, but looking at that, starting with, well, why are hot dogs considered all American food when they're actually German, Mm. um, but perhaps not Chinese food? Right. So that's just an example. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the event tonight in Dexter. The, conversa- the conversation there is specifically about the legacy of land that has been dispossessed from African-American and Mexican-American farmers. Tell us a little bit about that story and how these different groups came to lose their farms and then how you came to be interested in, in making that the focus of this event. Well, so it's actually, um, it's a conversation, it's an experience, it's a dinner, um, and it is a journey that starts a conversation to begin to explore the legacy shared by African-American farmers um, and Mexican-Americans in the West who, um, you know, they have both lost land in different ways. We're continuing this conversation on the podcast as well as in short-form content that are going to tell the stories of regional farmers that we've sourced from for the event. Um, Obviously, you know, the, you know, Mexican-Americans, they were living in a particular area. There Mm -hmm. was a Mexican-American war. Mm -hmm. There was a treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo that was not honored, right? And so um, because of that specifically, um, there were rights that were guaranteed for Mexicans and former Mexicans to their property. Um, And so, for example, in New Mexico, maybe 76% of the claims were not honored. Um, And so that's how their land loss began to occur. Um, And then African-Americans, after Reconstruction, you know, many of the lands that they had been enslaved to work upon, you know, they had a culture of farming. um, And as a result, after Reconstruction, they purchase land and begin to, you know, create their mm-hmm. own kind of freedom. Um, and that dispossession happened through, you know, <laughs> people being run off of their land. Yeah. Um, Often you know, just, not, just random violence, right? I mean, just, <laughs> random uh, violence, yeah. um, access to capital, um, where banks would um, maybe not even offer them loans or use predatory rates, and then, you know, their white neighbors, um, you know, offer them a lower rate. So as a result, um, they're in terms of Mexican-Americans, we can't even quantify the amount of land that they lost. Um, however, there is a bill that has um, currently been introduced by the senator from New Mexico that will allow them to, if it's passed, it will allow them to re-engage with their ancestral land mm. and continue their traditions. Um, and as you know, um, I think a lot of people might have heard of the Justice for Black Farmers Act, which was introduced by Senator Cory Booker um, also in 2021. Both of these um, acts, and I just want to go back, the Land Grant Mercedes Traditional Use Recognition and Consultation Act mm-hmm. is the one that was introduced um by the senator from New Mexico, Senator Ben Ray Lujan. So it's really interesting to explore when you have a group of people that have cultivated their culture from the land, what happens when you take them away from it culturally, emotionally, socioeconomically, generationally. But when we talk about legacy, that's what it looks like. And then also we're exploring, obviously, what do current efforts today look like to make amends for this? Yeah. 
Yeah. And of course, you've got uh, chefs, uh, local chefs who will be there from Detroit and, and Washtenaw County, which is which is really exciting. We've got about a minute left. I want to have you talk about uh, how the conversation will be kind of shaped at this event. Yeah. So we have an event tonight. Um, we are sourcing from farms, black owned and Mexican farms in Detroit and Washtenaw County, as well as having chefs from Detroit and Washtenaw County, as well as one from um from Grand Rapids, and they are interpreting their ingredients. And the the journey really it starts us with, um, you know, the, that first loss that happens in the Mexican American War, and they are going to be thematically interpreting the ingredients to tell that story um, chronologically. So it's going to be a really special event. We have some tickets available. Folks can go to our website at iconoclastdinner.com. They can go to Instagram at Icon Dinner and go to the link there to purchase tickets. Natalie Bazile, the author of Queen Sugar and the most recently published book, We Are Each Other's Harvest. She's joining us as honorary chair. Um, Own Network will be here this evening, mm. you know, really capturing this historic evening. Um, and these amazing local chefs, April Anderson, um, George Azar, G. Hay Kim, Kiki Luya, Oscar Moreno. And then as Detroit has a huge cocktail culture, um, we have Nat- Natalia de Miguel Anoni, who is creating cocktails for the event. So it's going to be a special evening. It's actually not at Zingerman's Deli, although they have a huge uh, enterprise, Zingerman Corman's Farm. So it's, it's going to be a beautiful yeah. event on the farm. Yeah. 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 No. Okay. Uh, Dr. Harville, it was really great to have you here to talk about uh, all of this work and, of course, about the event tonight. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about crime trends in America, why they have been trending downward, but also why we've been having a spate of mass shootings in the country, state, and here in the city of Detroit. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.